pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it is an amazing thing what Christ has done. We even receive a great benefit at this moment to stand in your presence, forgiven, accepted, heard by you. It's an amazing thing to think and to know that the creator of all that is hears and sees us. So Father and I pray even what would be a preposterous prayer except for Christ that you would actually speak to us and that we would hear, really hear and that your word would sink deep and profoundly in us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to First Peter in chapter 3. I want to begin with verse 17 and end by simply reading the first half of verse 1 of chapter 4. First Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 17 through the first half of verse 1 in chapter 4. Hear the word of God. For it is better to suffer for doing good that if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirits, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's as far as I want to go. Now, whatever else may be said about the Apostle Peter, uh, I think we need to say that he's a realist, that he understands that suffering is a part of life, which isn't to say that Peter, I think, thought that there was no joy in life. Certainly he did no great joy in life. Certainly he didn't think that life was just one big mess. Um, But yet he understood that suffering happens thus the realist. I think everyone knows this. Everyone views suffering, sees it. Elementary kids know it. They may not be able to articulate exactly why they are suffering or experience suffering, but they know that they do. They know that there's trouble. They know that there's difficulty. They, they know anxiety. They know insecurity. They know discipline. They know hurt and pain. They understand that. Teenagers understand that. College students understand that. Young adults understand that. Middle-aged people understand that. The elderly understand that. Suffering ranges in the lives of people from small to great. Sometimes we understand why it comes. Sometimes we know that we're the cause of our own trouble. Sometimes we can pinpoint other people who at least appear to be the cause of our trouble. Sometimes it's difficult to determine the cause of our trouble. It seems that some are troubled perhaps Because of genetics, they may just have a predisposition to certain sadnesses or certain difficulties in the context of 
life. We know we live in a fallen world, and so there's sin that creeps into institutions and social structures, and even in the context of people's hearts, we experience a measure of suffering in the context of life. We understand that. It's sort of a given for us. So much of life is how to alleviate that, how to sort of avoid that, how to get around that kind of suffering. It just simply exists. We know that. But for Christians, there's also this element of suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Peter puts it back in verse 14, of suffering for righteousness' sake. And this, verse 17, suffering for, for doing good. And you get the impression in Peter's day that they were at a place where because they were believers, uh, certain things were happening to them that would never otherwise have happened. Perhaps they were having a difficulty making a living because they were believers. Perhaps they were having a difficulty uh, fitting in in the context of society because they were believers. Uh, we know that uh, even though civil government is set up to protect the good, we know that in their context, and the context of the early church, oftentimes there was persecution at the hands of civil government in the context of believers because they wouldn't confess that Caesar was Lord. They wouldn't go along with various aspects of, 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 of civil life because they were believers in Christ. Uh, we've experienced that throughout the history of the church. Uh, we know in certain regimes and various nations, even in modern times, it's a very dangerous thing to be a Christian. Even in the context of our own lives, we know a measure of suffering because of doing good, because of righteousness sake, because of following after Christ. We know that there are times when we'd love to intervene and we do intervene in the context of people's lives because of moral issues that we find there, people that we love and we feel rejection. How many people's lives would you love to be able to speak into as a believer in Christ and go to them and yet the avenue is closed because of their own resistance. And if you love them, there's a measure of suffering and pain that, that's there for righteousness' sake. Parents know it in the lives of their children. Children sometimes know it in the lives of their parents. I can't tell you how many college students come to me before fall break, before Thanksgiving break, before Christmas break, before spring break, and ask me to pray for them and others on our staff to pray for them because they're going home and they're the only Christians in their family. And they know when they go home that they're going to be belittled in certain little ways that only parents can do to kids in that kind of situation. They're going to be viewed as irresponsible and immature. And if only, you know, once they get a little older, they won't be so religious and all that sort of thing. And there's suffering that goes on in the context of that. Many of you know the suffering that takes place in, around the water cooler as a believer that... When you show up, things change. People look at you funny because they know there are certain jokes, certain words, certain things that aren't said because you're there. And you sense that. You know that. Businessmen who travel know that they're different than the other businessmen often they travel with. And there's a certain measure of rejection and loneliness that comes because of that righteousness, suffering for doing good. We, we know that. But you get the impression from Peter that if you were in his day and you were a, an evangelistic type and you were sharing your faith with others, that you would have to add an addendum. Certainly you would talk about the great joy there is in being a believer in Christ and hearing the words of Jesus when he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. And you can just imagine as we do in our day telling people about that great rest that one receives from having to work to please and simply receive salvation from God. But you also get the impression that there would be this little addendum. And it may even have gone without saying in those days that if you become a follower of Christ, of course, you're likely to lose your job. 
And if you become a follower of Christ, you're, you're likely to be rejected by your family. And if you become a follower of Christ, you might be ostracized by your community. And if you become a follower of Christ, it may well be that it could mean your own death. That suffering seems more a part of the situation. I, I get the impression, too, that it's real and normal in the Christian life as I read through the New Testament. For example, you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on, a, on my account. Rejoice and be glad. You get the impression that Jesus was setting us up to say, hey, listen, this is going to happen. This is real. And he goes on in Matthew chapter 10. He says, the disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, master of the house Beelzebul, that is, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? That's us. What Jesus is saying is likely to be maligned. You remember his very strong words on the night that he was betrayed as with, he was, with his disciples. And John records this in chapter 15 and verse 18 of his gospel. He, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute, persecute, uh, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on my account, on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Again, you get the impression that in some sense this is normal. The Apostle Paul writes this as he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, this normalcy of suffering, not only in the normal sufferings of life, we might say, but in, in the sufferings for righteousness' sake. They say, but that doesn't seem to be quite like that, our experience. That's true. I think we do need to understand this relatively broadly, but, but also to understand, well, frankly, as Americans, we really think everything revolves around us. We really think that if it hasn't happened to us in this generation, in America then it probably hasn't happened, or it probably doesn't happen, or it probably isn't the norm for human beings. But we have to remember that we're a very small percentage of the total population of the world. We have to remember that we've been around this country in a very small amount of time compared to the history of humanity. And just because there perhaps has been this little intermission for this breath of time, in the history of the world, in the history of human beings. But that doesn't mean this isn't true. That over the course of time, as you look in believers' lives, 
that this kind of suffering for the sake of righteousness, not only the kind that we experience, more of an internal emotional kind of anguish because of rejection and misunderstanding and, and our longing to see Christ honored, but also this kind of situation, very real in history. And Peter's speaking to it, we need to hear it. Because it does apply to our own anguish, but it also, I think, may well be in preparation. I don't know, I'm no prophet, but I want to be ready for whatever comes down the pike, be it tomorrow or be it on the last day of my 85th birthday. I need to be ready for these things. So we need to ask the question, even at this point, how are we to think about this? How are we to think about righteousness and think about suffering for righteousness' sake? Now, you know, just because of the last few weeks and probably because of your Christian life, I've already given you the answer to that question. The answer to every Christian question is Jesus. That's right. That's why in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That is, we need to think about suffering for righteousness' sake in the same way that Jesus did. He's our model. He's our prophet. He's the one who informs all of our thinking. So we need to think about suffering for righteousness' sake in the same way uh, that that Jesus did. Because I wonder. I wonder how much suffering would it take in our lives, in your life or mine, for us to begin to doubt the gospel. I mean, for some, it's, you know, you get a bad haircut and you go, but I prayed about this. It must mean God doesn't answer prayer. It's a little minor. But I wonder, how much suffering would it take in the context of your life, really, for you to begin to doubt the gospel, for you to stop speaking on behalf of Christ, for you to stop identifying with Christ, for you to stop identifying with the people of God? How much suffering would it take? We need to learn to think about these things rightly so it's in our hearts and in our, our minds. And, and I think first and foremost, Jesus understood suffering as the will of God. Suffering for righteousness sake is the will of God. Verse 17, uh, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, it's never terribly good for suffering for doing evil. That's just justice. I mean, that's just what you deserve. But he says, so it's, it's better if it be God's will, meaning that there are times when God wills it for us to suffer, and to suffer for righteousness' sake. I mean, the normal course of events, we would hope, is that if we're doing good, then, then good things will happen. But he says it's the intention of God, at times, for us to suffer even for doing good. Again, Jesus knew that. He came, he said, to do the will of his Father. And of course, we know the will of his Father. The will of his Father was that he would come and that he would die. And that he would give himself. And that he would suffer. For me, one of the most chilling verses, and every time I, said, I, I say, for me, then you can disregard this if you want to, because it's just for me. This is just my deal. This is just what strikes me. It doesn't have to strike you the same way. I'm no great authority on what should strike you necessarily, but what strikes me is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke writes this about Jesus, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that, to me, chills. Because at that moment in time, everything twists, everything turns. And Jesus, you can just see, he can only see Jerusalem. And what he sees in Jerusalem is betrayal, 
beating, being ostracized, being killed, and rising from the dead. That's what he sees when he sees Jerusalem. So he sets his face to go there. Why? Because he knows it's the will of God for him to suffer. In fact, as Peter writes, really preaches this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, we find in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, it was by the hands of lawless men. Yes, it was evil for them to do this. But it was God's will that Jesus suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's how Jesus understood suffering the context of life, and that's how we should understand it as well, that it is the will of God. When we find ourselves suffering in agony, all the way to persecution physically, we should understand that to be the will of God. Secondly, verse 18, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus understood that his suffering would actually bring us to God, and, and it did. He was our representative before God. He was our substitute before him. Now, the image here, of course, is the image of the Old Testament, where, where there was a, 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 a type or a symbol that corresponded with what was to come. And Jesus is the antitype of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of that type, which was this whole sacrificial system. And though, so in those days, there was a, an animal that was slain so that human beings could live because we knew that the wages of sin is death. And there was a great seriousness and a great amazement about, about that ritual. The seriousness being, look, this is what your sin costs. This is the problem. And the amazement is, but God will spare you. And thus Jesus comes, you see, and he's the fulfillment of that picture. He's the fulfillment of that type. He's the fulfillment of that, of that shadow. And he comes, of course, and the scripture says, he also suffered once for sins, that is, he paid the price. You see, this is the exclusivity of the gospel. This is, this is why the gospel is unique. Because God identifies, in our case, one problem and one solution. There's only one problem, thus there's only one solution, and it's God's solution. The one problem, of course, is our sin, our rebelliousness against God. And there's only one thing that can solve that problem. You see, our rebelliousness problem is really a problem of justice. God deserves our love and honor and obedience. He deserves that. As God. Not to honor him as God. Not to love him as God. Not to obey him as God. Is an act of injustice. It's simply wrong. Because he's God. And he deserves that. Given who he is. As our creator. And the one who gives us breath. And the one that provides for us. 
He deserves it. And we all have a sense in us, this is the image of God in us, we all have a sense in us of justice. When injustice takes place, there's something even in us that rises up and we say, that's wrong. Someone needs to pay for that. You know, if someone comes and steals your car, there's a sense of injustice and you say, that's wrong. Someone needs to pay for that. And in the sense, same sense, with this injustice against God, if we don't honor him as God, if we don't love him as God, if we don't obey him as God, there's an injustice done. And it simply can't be overlooked. But this injustice is far greater than anything else we could ever imagine because this is against God. And thus the wages of this, the penalty of this, this sin against God is to be estranged from him, to be cast out of his presence, to be not in the presence of his love and blessing, but rather to be under his wrath. And so that's the issue. That's the problem that we face. And so Jesus, in order to bring us to God, has to alleviate this justice issue. And how does he do that? He comes and he suffers once for all time. It doesn't have to happen again. It simply has to happen once and happens in him because he's infinitely worth us all. Because his suffering can count for ours. Because he's the great, perfect son of God, son of man. And so you see, he takes this sin upon himself, this suffering once for all upon himself. So that we can be brought to God. So Jesus understands not only is his suffering uh, uh, for the will of God, but it's also in order to bring people to himself and thus to God. It's true for us as well. That our suffering, for righteousness sake, is to be used by God to bring others to him. Now, not in the same sense of Jesus, obviously. Whatever we suffer is not atoning for anyone else. If you suffer for righteousness sake, it isn't covering the sins of anybody else. It's not doing that. Jesus did that once for all. His suffering covered. His suffering paid for. The sins of sinners. Our suffering doesn't. But still, you see, we identify with him so closely in life that our suffering brings others to him. Peter mentions that, for instance, in verse 15, which we considered last Sunday. He says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. You see, in the midst of suffering, when our hope should be gone and isn't, people pay attention to that. And people say, what's the deal? What hope have you that gives us opportunity then to share that great hope? One of the verses that I live on in the context of my own life is in Psalm 119. And it begins in verse 67. Psalmist writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That is, the affliction that the psalmist experienced brought him back. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, I might learn your statutes. He understands in his own heart the blessing of afflictions. And then verse 74, he says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. Yeah, that's true. When you suffer for righteousness' sake and others see you 
when you suffer in any regard, and others see you, and you maintain faith because you have hope, then those who fear God mature. Those who fear God grow in their own faith. Because he says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I'm drawn so many times more deeply into my love for Christ by watching believers as they suffer for righteousness sake, as they struggle in the context of their own life to maintain faith, as they struggle through great difficulties in their life in order to continue to walk with, with Christ. I'm blessed, for instance, by, by the college guys I know. Because I couldn't imagine being 19 years old in this culture. I couldn't imagine the, the struggle that a young man has to face in these days with all the emphasis on sexual immorality and so forth. And I look at those guys who are struggling and it helps me. And I go, yes, there's hope. These young men are, are, are fighting the good fight. Oh, they're failing in their fight from time to time, but they're fighting the good fight. And that gives me great hope and great encouragement. When I visit with people who are otherwise should otherwise be in a hopeless situation and still they believe in Jesus, I say, thank you, God. Because I know that when I go through a situation like theirs, you'll be with me as well. And, and those moments actually bring me into the very presence of God that I wouldn't otherwise be. And think of unbelievers when they see us. Think of unbelievers when they see us struggle for righteousness sake and, and, and still have hope in the midst of the fact that they, as unbelievers, have rejected us. They begin to think, these people are strange. These people are really bizarre. What could be going on in them? What do they have that I don't have? And you get this sense of pooling to bring to God. The Apostle Paul understood his own suffering in, in that regard. For instance, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, now listen to this, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now I have to be honest with you. I don't understand what that means really. I know you're thinking, why do we pay this guy? And the reason I say that is, because it's astounding. He's saying, first, I'm so united to Christ in his life. Second, I'm so united with you that when I suffer, it isn't just for me. It's to help you. And it's for your salvation. In some way, so that you might be encouraged by the comfort that I receive, that you might be encouraged because when you're afflicted in the same way, you'll have hope, so that when you're afflicted in the same way, I can come and comfort you, and somehow, in the midst of this suffering, Jesus will be there. And you won't know it until it happens. 
but you can't experience it until it takes place. So he's saying, don't be afraid of these things, because when they show up in your life, Christ will show up in your life too. And when they show up in your life, understand that Jesus hasn't abandoned you. In fact, he's actually proclaiming himself through you in the context of the lives of others. And all that's by faith. You may not see it. You may not know it. But trust me, he says, that's what's happening. For instance, in chapter 4, in verse 15, in the midst of talking about his own sufferings and afflictions, the apostle says this, for it is all for your sake. That is, all his afflictions, all his sufferings. He's saying it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to God, thanksgiving to the glory of God. He's saying all this suffering is for your sake, because I'm so united to Christ and I'm so united to you, that as I suffer, you'll be blessed in some way. Colossians in chapter 1. In verse 24, Paul writes, by the way, it's very unlikely I'm going to get to the weird stuff about baptism this morning in the passage I read, so if that's what you marked, it'll have to be another week. Colossians in chapter 1, the apostle writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You know, we read that so quickly. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. For your sake, that is. I understand, Paul says, we need to understand. Jesus certainly understood in the context of his own sufferings. We need to understand that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it's a benefit to someone. It's a help to someone. It isn't wasted, but it's a help to someone. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, by that, Paul doesn't mean that there was anything lacking in the suffering of Christ for our salvation. It isn't like that Jesus only suffered 80% enough, or 90% enough, or even 99% enough. That's not his point. Jesus' blood is sufficient to bring us to God. His point is that in the context of his life, and thus in the context of our lives, we will, in identity with Christ, experience sufferings as well. That when Jesus suffered on the earth, it didn't end our sufferings. We'll still suffer. But we'll suffer for the sake of the gospel. Not because of the wrath of God, but for the sake of the gospel. When you and I are suffering, it isn't the wrath of God being poured out. It may be our discipline, discipline from him, but it's not his judgment against us, his wrath against us. When we're suffering now, it's suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's suffering to bring others to the faith. And so Paul says, I'm willing, quite willing to keep suffering. I'm quite willing to put my neck on the line. I'm, keep, I'm quite willing to, to be poured out as a drink offering for you as I take the gospel into hostile places. I'm willing to do that. Because that's what's necessary. So I'm willing to make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And I'm willing to suffer in this way in order to bring the gospel to you. I'm willing to suffer in this way to make the gospel real. To show you that it really does work. 
See, that's why as you go into trouble, you may already be there deep. Think about it like Jesus. This is the will of God. It's not the will of a God who is hateful. It's the will of a God who loves me. And not only that, he has a purpose. What he's going to do in the midst of my suffering is he's going to proclaim himself through me, through this time. That's why Paul says, I can't wait to identify, I can't wait to be united, in Philippians chapter 3, to the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because when that happens, Christ preaches, Christ speaks in ways that we would not otherwise know. And so he says, let's, let's do this. For instance, 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, in verse 8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He knew that. So as we enter into suffering for righteousness' sake, understand it's the will of God. Understand that it's going to be used by God to bring people to him. And understand that though you may be suffering, and you may be bound, God's word is not bound. Let me skip ahead quickly. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirits, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God, uh, obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Complicated passage. I'll deal with it later. But the point being this, that even in the days of Noah, when Noah was a righteous man suffering for righteousness' sake, how would you like to be called to build the biggest ship anybody's ever seen and say it's going to rain so much and the, and the, and the groundwater is going to come out so much that it's going to flood in such a way that you're going to need this big boat to stay alive and then that you're going to bring animals in by pairs to live in your boat with you while all this happens. They think we're crazy believing in Jesus, let alone that. And here's Noah. But he says, don't worry, God is faithful. He saved a few, eight persons in all. But he saved them through the water. And in the midst of that, Jesus proclaimed righteousness. He'll do it. Even in the context of your own suffering. And how can he do it? Well, verse 22 speaks of Jesus like this. It speaks of him and he says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That is, when he rises from the dead, this Jesus goes over all. So you understand, there isn't anyone or anything, be it another person or be it a demon straight from the pit of hell, who can harass you, revile you, persecute you, that isn't 
subjected to Jesus. He's sovereign over all that. And you say, well, why should that make me happy? Well, it should make you happy because you can realize that when these things come against you, it's because it's the will of God. And when these things come against you, the will of God is that through you, Jesus might be proclaimed. And it's the will of God that through you, as he's being proclaimed, that others will be brought to him. Because he's the sovereign one, so don't be afraid. A week or so ago, can't remember when, been talking to too many people too many times. Speaking to a group of people about John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress. And in the midst of his sufferings for the sake of Christ, he said something like this. He said, if I knew it weren't lawless, that if I knew it weren't against God's law, I would pray for more suffering. And the reason that he would pray for more suffering, he said, first and foremost, because the comfort is so great. Because you can only know the depths of that comfort, that personal comfort from God when you're in the midst of that kind of situation. And he said, oh, the comfort's so good, I'll pray for the suffering if, if I thought that were mine to pray for. And because of the great witness that it would provide. And all this is true, of course, because of Jesus. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And this too, he gave his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we to remember? So many things, I'm sure. But at least this. That it worked. That through his suffering, the truth of the righteousness of God was proclaimed. And through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection, we were brought to God. And now he says, listen. Be mine. Follow after me. Don't worry about the suffering. When it comes for righteousness sake, understand that I'm doing that work. Oh, it's not atoning what you're suffering. It's, it's not working like that. I've already done all that. But now through you, I will proclaim my righteousness. I will proclaim the truth. And I will bring people to myself. Don't be afraid. Let's pray for heaven. Even as this table is before us, it's amazing to us. It's amazing to me, that's for sure. That your kindness and grace, you've sent Jesus to die, to suffer. The agony of which none of us can even imagine. In fact, the agony of which none of us need experience. Because we did. But we do know, those of us who are believers, that through his suffering, you've brought us to yourself that we might be accepted, that justice would be done, that grace would be given. Father, now enable us to believe that in the midst of his rejected Christ, 
that we could live in such a way that even if it's your will that we might suffer for the sake of righteousness, that you will, through even our suffering, proclaim the gospel so that people might know that Jesus has suffered also for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that we might be brought to God and that we would know therefore that our suffering isn't wasted but our suffering is eternally valuable being used to your glory. So now we pray that you would set aside this bread and use to convince us once again that this is true, that the gospel is true, that we might grab a hold with all of our life and believe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all of those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope except in His sovereign mercy, who believe in Jesus, receive and depend upon Him alone as He's offered to us in the gospel and desire to live a life that's becoming a follower of Christ. And remember, that may well mean suffering for the sake of righteousness. But you know what that means. So let me invite you to come these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, in your own head, say, Jesus, proclaim your righteousness through me. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, it is amazing to us. I pray even now, Lord Jesus, that you would minister to each of us in such a way as to bring the very truth of the gospel deep within us and a smile to our face, even perhaps as we face adversaries, because we know what you know. We know your design, and that's our heart too. That whatever it takes from us, in us, through us, in your work, to proclaim this truth, we pray, that you do. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Also, the Sunday school class is happening at 9.45. The response to the benediction, as always for us, is to sing the doxology. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings